Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Well, welcome everyone. Happy Father's Day to the room. Can we give it up for our fathers, for our dads? Some of, my, uh, some of my favorite memories, most formative memories in my life have been shared with my dad and also with father figures in my life. And um, you have an important job. You have an important job and you are making memories as we speak with the little ones. So thank you for all that you do. Um, will you join me in prayer and then we'll jump into today's topic. Uh, God, we do know you are, um, you're the God of miracles. You're the God who brings the dead back to life. We saw it in Jesus. Your first disciples attested to it. They were just as shocked as anyone else that Jesus of Nazareth, who proved that he was your representative through signs and wonders, and then he was killed, crucified on a cross, and yet you raised him to life again. And he appeared to his first followers, they saw you, they attested to you, and they passed down this testimony. And so we know that you are the God who raises the dead to life. We know that your love is stronger than death. We know that you are with us. And that for each one of us in this room, you long to raise us to life. There are things in our hearts and in our minds and in our bodies that are dead, that are numb, as we sang today, that are asleep and you want to give us freedom. You want to give us life in abundance. And so I pray, Lord, in this next bit of time, as we turn our hearts towards you, would you give us ears to hear your voice? Would you give us a receptive heart that is willing to listen? We love you, God. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, welcome again to Hope Brooklyn. Um, As we said, we are a community of faith that believes no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. If you're joining us for the first time, we've been in the series that we've been calling The Politics of Jesus. The Politics of Jesus. And just to give a brief recap what we mean when we say that. Politics, I know it's easy for us to abstract it and think of it like a, a system of governance, but at its core, politics is just dealing with how we live. Politics is looking at a community and what a community values as like the highest aim or the highest good, and then putting into practice certain uh, structures that allow us to pursue it. So in America, we, we value freedom above everything else, individual freedom. And so we organize ourselves as a country that pursues that highest good, at least in theory. Um, so that's what we mean by politics. So a couple things for, for our case, when we say what are the politics of Jesus, we're asking what does he say is the highest good? How does he organize those who follow him? And it's quite simple. For Jesus, the highest good for a human being is to love God with everything that you have and to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, when we, when we talk about that, it's important that we keep in mind that Jesus' politics are independent of how they might impact any nation state that we're living among. Now, to be sure, if his followers are doing it right, it will impact the nation, in our case, America, that we're living among. But it's not just about that. And then as the series have gone on, we, we've talked about how we sort of contrasted uh, structures of Cain and the people of Jubilee. And what we mean by that is uh, structures of Cain are we look out in our society and we see structures that are present that commit violence toward one another. And we say, for Jesus, that's not what we're about. We aren't people that commit violence toward others. We are people of the cross, people of Jubilee. Um, And what that means is we would rather receive violence and offer love, offer grace, than inflict violence. So we've been looking at various arms of our society, various sectors and structures, and asking that questions of where do they commit violence and how can we, as followers of Jesus, if we call ourselves such, how can we imagine different alternatives? Little disclaimer. Today we're gonna talk about sex. Yes, who's excited about that? Uh, My mouth was dry, I have a lot of water up here. 
Uh, we're talking about sex and intimacy and relationships. And I just want to be, uh, to provide that as disclaimer to the room. I sent out an email midweek. I'm not going to be unnecessarily graphic up here. I'm not. But I'm also not going to shy away from topics and from my own history in such a way that it may make us feel uncomfortable. And especially if there are any uh, um, first-timers who, who are parents or parents in the room, if your kids are in the room, your youth, I just want you to be aware of the topic uh, and the conversation we're about to have. I think it's super important, but just to, to judge whether you think uh, your child is ready for that or not. Does that sound good? You ready to jump in? All right, so we're gonna read from, I heard someone say no in the room. <laughs> we're gonna read Matthew chapter five. So it comes from a pretty large section of teaching called the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is teaching his followers a lot about his politics, a lot about what it means to be, um, to be his disciple, to learn from him, to follow him. And we're gonna read a section of, of scripture, uh, four verses or five verses, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 31. And this is what we read. Jesus is talking. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to, to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. All right, what's he getting at? Hopefully, if you've been with us the last couple weeks, you're already starting to notice a theme with Jesus's politics. Last week, we talked about healthcare and the Good Samaritan. And if you remember the story, uh, the guy who's testing Jesus, he goes, hey, who's my neighbor, right? Who's my neighbor? And we were told in the story that he asked that question, not because he cared about his neighbor, he wanted to know the bare minimum expected of him. He wanted to know exactly like, who am I expected to care for and who am I not expected to care for? Tell me just that and no more. Which means he wasn't really interested in other people. He was just interested in himself. The week before that, we talked about uh, the economy. We talked about wealth. And one of the questions, one of the things we, we, drew, we drew out from the passage is, well, Jesus, tell us the best economic structure. Is it capitalism? Is it socialism? Is it something else? And he doesn't do that. Rather, he says, beware of all forms of greed and be rich toward God. We, it's the same thing. We want to know, just tell us exactly what's expected of us. But why? Why do we want to know exactly what's expected of us so we can do that and nothing more? Because we're fundamentally interested about ourselves. I just wanna know, Jesus, what you're expecting of me, and I'll do that and no more. Tell me how much money I can make and how much is too much. Tell me who's my neighbor and who's not my neighbor. Just give me the law. And Jesus refuses to give us the law. See, here's, here's something that we should pick up now. The politics of the world are about me. You tell me what's expected, I do it and no more, because I'm looking after myself above all else. The politics of Jesus are about relationships. The politics of Jesus, he's not fundamentally trying to create a new structure. He's trying to create a new people. He doesn't want to tell you what to do. Rather, he wants to be in relationship with you, give you his spirit so that in any situation, you intuitively know what to do. You don't need to ask questions like, who is my neighbor? Because you know who your neighbor is. Because you're a certain type of person. The politics of the world is often about protecting myself. But the politics of Jesus is built off of a fundamental relationship with him and then with one another. He's not trying to give us a law. 
He's trying to form us into a certain type of people. And if this is true, then the essence of Jesus's politics, the essence of Jesus's kingdom is intimacy. Is intimacy. The law says don't commit adultery. Jesus says, as intimate beings made in God's image, made in your father's image, looking so as to sexually covet, you've already done it. He's forming us into a certain type of person. And I want to focus on that first. We are created, when we're told that humans are made in the image of God, in the Imago Dei, we are created as intimate sexual beings. Uh, A little theology, uh, it's been said that God, and this is a much longer conversation, but suffice it to say in the Orthodox faith, God, the, the, the one who is behind all that is, the one in whom we live and move and have our being, is actually triune, three in one. One substance, but three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that are constantly in, in God's nature, in God's very self, that there's this beautiful mutual indwelling and dance among the three. Such that, and, and I know this can get a little complicated, I almost put an algebra equation to try to explain it, and then I realized that was a terrible idea. Um, but, but such that when you're, when you're looking at the Father, you're also seeing the Son and the Holy Spirit. When you're looking at the Son, you're seeing the other two. There's no distinction. There's one substance. God is one. God is God. But God just so happens to be three beautiful persons, which makes sense because we're told that the essence of God is love. And love, that in, in, this, in the sort, love that is willing to lay down its life for another. And you can't have that with just a single entity. You need at least two to be able to lay down your life. Many ancient scholars describe this this trinity, this this triune nature of God as perichoresis. Perichoresis, you may have heard that word. Peri means about or around, and choresis is where we get the word choreograph. So it has this, this movement, this dance. So to dance about and around at the root of being itself, at the root of God, is relationship, is intimacy, is a dance of love. And Jesus, I think what is so compelling and why I've never met anyone not compelled by the story of Jesus, who's really reading it. What's so compelling is Jesus is a human manifestation of the triune love. What we see when we look at his life is one who is perfectly intimate with God. And we've never seen that in another human. Uh, and actual, uh, also, uh, another ancient theologian described God, this perichoresis, triune nature, as interpenetration. And I do want you to hear the sexual connotations in that. Interpenetration, the essence of God in God's being, is both penetrator and penetrated. Desire and consent in God's very self that is constantly moving and dancing, which allows for the perfection of love. So in God's image, he created us. Male and female, he created them. We are embodied compositions of the triune intimacy designed to dance with God and one another. And I think before we go any further, I want to parse out the difference between intimacy and sexuality. And I, I know there's differing views, and, and for our purposes, it's really interesting because we are in the West, which means we have learned a lot of our theology from the Western church, the Roman Catholic church. But there's also a whole other, you know, strand of thinking in the Eastern church, Eastern tradition, before the church split in 1041. And one of the famous Eastern church fathers named Origen in the third century, he parsed out this difference between intimacy and sexuality, which I think is more faithful to the biblical tradition personally. And he says that intimacy 
is a deeper sense of our being. Sexuality is but a subcategory of intimacy. And even in the poetic structuring of Genesis 1, in God's image, he created them. And then below that, male and female, he created them. We were created as intimate beings. And then we sort of distill that down to men and women as sexual beings as well. Now, this is important because as we look at our society's sexual ethic, our sexual politics, one of the biggest differences we see from the outset between society's sexual ethic and Jesus's is the way society has separated intimacy in the body, which we'll call sex, from intimacy and emotions and spiritual being. So bodily sex and emotional and spiritual bonding are almost treated as discrete things. And science, I think, is kind of proven that's just not the case. We can't separate our body, our mind, and our spirit. We can't parse them apart. We are all interconnected. We are all one. And we even see that. So at orgasm, both women and men release a, a chemical called oxytocin. It's known as the intimacy agent. So uh, I heard um, someone quit one time that we think that we fall in love and then we have sex, which is partly true, but it's also just as true to say we actually have sex and then our bodies fall in love is what happens. You can't separate the two. And the reason why this is important because oxytocin, even though it's released at orgasm, oxytocin is also released in a woman when she's giving birth and also when she's breastfeeding to form intimacy with her child. Oxytocin is also released when you're cuddling a dog. Seriously, <laughs> Harvard found that. This is why law schools, and when they have exam week, and maybe some of the lawyers know this, at least at the, some of the law schools that I, um, at Duke where I went to seminary, they would have puppy rooms where you could take breaks and cuddle puppies. And they like release stress. It, what, it's, what it's getting at, what's important about this is that intimacy is a broader category than just bodily sex. It's a broader category, but that split between what our bodies do and what our eyes see and what our hands touch and what our hearts desire, it's just frankly non-existent in God. And it's non-existent in, our, in, in us who are made in the image of God. And I don't know if, if, if this is completely true or correlation is causation, but a philosophy professor, Anne Maloney, wrote, it is no coincidence that the top two prescribed drugs at our state university's health center are antidepressants and birth control. I think there's something that sort of begins to, to sound a little bit like truth. If we separate what our bodies do and the rest of what it means to be a human being, that's not the way we're designed. Another example of this, of, of how we've separated sort of um, intimacy in the body versus intimacy everywhere else is pornography, the rise of pornography. We've now had uh, 25 years um, of, of uh, internet pornography in society. It's become very normalized now. And so we're just now having reports come out that have been able to study the longitudinal data. But what, what they're finding at the outset is that it hinders the development of healthy sexuality among adults and distorts the attitudes, sexual attitudes and social realities. And the statistics are pretty wild, such that by one estimation within the church, 70% of men and 50% of women look at porn, which means over half of us in this room look at porn. And I wanna stop there for a second and address something. Because I know that some of the deepest shame in a person's heart and life has to do with sexual shame. I saw my first pornographic image when I was eight years old and I can still see it in my brain. I was at a Borders bookstore. My brother said, Russ, look at this. I turned around and he had a magazine. And I just, it was, I saw it. I can still see the ponytail, I can still see all the facial and, and features 
of the page. I discovered internet pornography when I was in eighth grade and I was immediately hooked. I looked at porn all throughout high school and into college and I've had so much sexual shame attached to that. When I met Anna, I wasn't looking at porn anymore, but I also still had temptations because we create habits and patterns in our bodies. And so there were moments when I would get super stressed in life and my, my body would say, return to this because it had provided a release, it had provided an outlet. And one of the toughest things for me to do was to confess to Anna that this is something because I felt so little. I felt so uh, emasculated, like that she's not enough or, or, or whatever. And that actually ended up becoming one of the biggest boons of our relationship because Anna demonstrated such love for me, such understanding, and she's become my partner as we pursued our relationship together. So the first thing I want to say, if these stats prove true, is you are not shamed in this room. You are not shamed. And in fact, the power of the gospel, of what we're getting at, is that God wants to meet you right in that place where you think there's no way God would ever want to be there. That's, in fact, where he wants to meet you and deliver his message. And his message is simple. His message is, you are my child. You are my beloved, right as you are. You haven't destroyed that. You haven't messed that up. You're not, you know, jacked up beyond repair. Not at all. You are my child. So I want, I want you to know that at first, that you are welcome here, that even though it feels like it's in the dark or it's in the secret, I see you, we're acknowledging it, and I see it, and you are most welcome in this place. You are loved. But we found, we found that pornography, um, it is neuroscience is confirming the addictive nature of it that it releases dopamine in the brain, just like alcohol and drugs. So it is an addictive substance. There's actually also been a rise in impotence among men with their with, uh, real-life partners because they've created a, a, a virtual sexual appetite that is divorced from an actual human being. Notice, and we're gonna come back to this later, in the passage we read, after Jesus talks about lust, individual lust, right? Our own personal lust, then he attaches it to divorce. And that's not, that's not on accident. Because he, uh, Jesus is saying that, that what we do in our bodies is connected to the type of structures we create. We've talked about that before. And the same is true with pornography. Statistics show that porn use increases infidelity by 300% and that 68% of divorce cases involve meeting a new person on the internet, 56% involve at least one partner having an obsessive porn use. And the last stat I just want to throw in to the parents in the room, the average age now of a child seeing hardcore violent internet porn, so not porn that seemingly presents two consenting parties, but violent porn. And most of the time, the violence is done against women. The average age of a child seeing that is eight years old. At eight, before puberty is hitting, they are seeing images and situations of a sexual nature that they're having to categorize, they're having to process, they're having to make sense of, and that's shaping the reality of what is appropriate, inappropriate, what is, what is sexually desirable, undesirable. And I say that to say, if this isn't a space where we can have conversations and no spaces, parents, if you aren't people that they can talk to about any and everything going on inside of them, then they're going to get their information elsewhere. Do not allow that to happen. Make sure that your child knows no matter what, they are loved because they're your child above everything else, above any decisions that can be made. They are your child. That's the gospel. And so often we've, that's been not lived out in churches to our detriment, to our sinfulness.
So I know the deep shame that goes with sexual intimacy and porn. So much of porn for me was because I felt so ugly. I developed this language later, but I felt so ugly because of my face and the surgeries I was going through. I felt so insecure that I was terrified of being rejected. So rather than step into, and, and most people will say this with addictive substances, that this is, this is how it works. Rather than step into this tough conflict, the stuff that makes you grow, we shy away and we find a substance that makes us feel really good. And for me, that was porn. That rather than risk being rejected by someone, I shied away and I knew that every time I went to this place, I would be accepted. And though it was a cheap, artificial acceptance, I was still accepted there every time. And that was my shame. And God had to meet me in that place and woo me. And one of the, one of the liberating words he gave me, and I want to offer this, and I want to offer it because it potentially could be misunderstood, but it's still the truth. One of the moments of total freedom that God gave me is when he got through to me one time and he said, hey, Russ, here's what I want you to know. If you decide to keep looking at porn, I want you to know I am with you. I love you. You're not gonna lose my love. And if you decide to stop, I want you to know I am with you. I love you. Nothing is gonna change, no matter what you decide. And here's why that's so liberating. It's because so much of, of, of porn for me was related to wanting to connect. And so I was terrified of forfeiting connection. So by God saying, before you can do anything or what you believe about yourself, you're connected with me. And so no matter what you decide, you're always gonna have my love. Always. That was liberating. In a sense, porn lost the power it had over me that made me so afraid because I knew that I would always have God. I didn't need it as much as I needed it anymore. And slowly out of that place, I began to develop new habits, develop new patterns, uh, pursue intimacy with God and with others. So this separation between the body's intimacy and intimacy in the motions of spiritual beings, or emotions or, or being a, a spiritual creature. And the tough thing is that the church has adopted this as well, especially over the last hundred years. The church has adopted this separation of mind, body, and spirit, such that often we talk about when we, when we show up in this space to love God and to be loved by God, we almost uh, uh, suggest that it's a spiritual thing as if it's not a bodily thing, as if what we're doing here isn't training our bodies to be intimate with God, or when we share a meal after service, or when we lay hands on each other and pray, as when we hug and when we worship, when we sometimes invite us to put our hands in the air or reach out, that we're not training our bodies to be intimate. Uh, another example is this. Um, and at least in the parts of the church that I grew up, this was really big, was purity culture. Purity culture. And there's lots of things that can be focused on that. And I understand why it developed. It developed because it developed at a time where um, the church saw um, sort of that split happening between sex and the body and everything else. And it wanted to, to, to protect its children in a lot of ways. So I understand. But here's what happened with it, unintentionally and I think just as harmful. Three, as three aspects. One, this, this idea of focus on the family, which is a company, uh, it's a Christian organization, um, which basically says e exactly what its name suggests, that the building block of the church is the nuclear family unit. There was also this element where we constantly were praying for our future spouse as a youth group. We were constantly praying for our future spouse and there was this teaching of don't be sexual, until you're married with your spouse. But what does that mean? What do those three things suggest? Here's what they suggest. First, that the primary building block of Jesus's church is the nuclear married couple and their children, which means if you wanna be a part of building Jesus's church, you gotta focus on the family. You gotta get married and have children. 
It suggests when we pray for our future spouse, and we did it a bunch. (laughs) We did it a bunch. Maybe you did too. When we pray for our future spouse, here's what that suggests. It means the spiritual formation we're doing here is actually a training ground for the real thing to come, which is your future marriage. We're suggesting that you're not really whole until you're married. We're suggesting that your savior, your primary intimacy partner is not God, but actually God is the one who is preparing you for your true intimacy partner, which will be your spouse. We got it all backwards. We got it all backwards. And even when we say things like, don't be sexual until you're married, what that means, what that's suggesting, and, and obviously like what we just talked about, the body would suggest don't trifle with it at all. It's super important. You can't separate it. But when we say don't be sexual until you're married, what we're saying is that the body is not capable of intimacy unless it's sexual intimacy. We're totally not setting us up. We're committing the exact same fallacy. That we're separating the body from everything else. So we say when we show up for church to love God and be loved by God, the body's not a part of this. The body absolutely is. We're learning to be intimate creatures. And if we, if we continue in that vein, we allow for no room for single Christians, Christians who don't want to get married, and we have this deferred hope that does not train children to understand and feel comfortable in their bodies. So get, and so what happens is they'll get married, and this happens all the time, they'll get married and then sex is not that great. <laughs> or sex is super painful, especially for the woman. Or sex is really all about the orgasm. That's the goal of sex. And there's no mutual dance of love. There's no delighting in being a bodily creature. Or if we're talking about the orgasm, really because we got our training from porn, from porn sex is all about the guy's orgasm. Right? That's what's happening. That's what's happening. But in Jesus' politics... In Jesus' politics, let me be abundantly clear, and a lot of this stuff is just off the top of my head rattling. It's not systematic. Your primary intimacy partner is not your spouse, nor will it ever be your spouse. Your primary intimacy partner is God. And your secondary intimacy partner is not your spouse, if you're married, but is the church, is fellow Christians. The building block of the church is not the married nuclear family, but the church itself. Baptism is our marriage ceremony, whereby we step into this community. We enter into the new dance of love. That's how it happens. When we're young, when we're old, when we sing of God's love for us and us for God, we are engaging in an intimate act where our bodies experience intimacy with God and with one another. We should tell our youth, we should tell each other, not everyone is going to get married, and that's okay. We have, bigger, uh, we have a bigger calling to our life than to our marriage or not. And the only marriage advice that Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, gave to married Christians, the only marriage advice, stop having sex for a period of time so you can pray. Why? Because it's so easy, and he says this in 1 Corinthians 7, it's so easy for the married couple to lose attention of God and actually care more about the concerns of the other. And to a certain degree, that is true because you are now, as a married couple, sort of this one flesh mystery. But also, he's trying to to reprioritize our priorities. God first, then church, and then marriage in the sense of who's your primary intimacy partner. God is your first intimacy partner then the communion of saints, and then us as the, 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 the married nuclear family. We should tell our youth that those who are united with God in Christ are already whole with him, lacking nothing, and they have one another as intimacy partners. This is why worship makes people who are not followers uncomfortable, but it must become more normalized. Because in worship, we are bodily loving God and receiving love. Otherwise, we split the body from the spirit. 
And even when you look at some of the earliest church fathers, um, there's, a, there's a commentary, some of the earliest church fathers on the Song of Songs. And the Song of Songs is in the Old Testament, and it's a poem between a bride and a, and a groom. And it's a very erotic love poem. And the earliest church fathers, when they read that, that poem, Song of Songs, and they interpreted it, they interpreted it as between us and God. They interpreted this as between what we are experiencing with God. A very intimate poem. When Paul talks about prayer in Romans 8, about the spirit groaning, he's viewing the purpose of our lives as being incorporated into the intimacy of the Godhead, as being united with God. The metaphors used throughout the New Testament between God and us as both parent and children and groom and bride. These mixed metaphors of intimacy are being employed everywhere. Jesus even says that in the resurrection, there's not going to be marriage. We're going to be like the angels, which I don't know what that means, but he said it. We have to normalize again that we are created in the image of perichoresis, the image of the intimate God, and we are intimate bodily beings where sex is a subcategory of intimacy, but it's not just our bodies, but it's also our mind and our spirit. Jesus is trying to create that within us again. He's trying to do that work. But that's not the biggest difference between society's sexual ethic and Jesus's. The biggest difference between society's and Jesus' sexual politics is not a separation between body and mind and spirit emotions, but a difference in our understanding of freedom. In our society, the root of freedom, what it means to be most free, most liberated, is found in the autonomous individual will. So I am most free when no one else can speak into my conception of myself. So therefore, the building block of the modern society, the modern politics, is the individual, his or herself. But the root of freedom, again, for a three-in-one, perichoresis God, is not an individual, but is relationship itself. So the building block of Jesus' kingdom is not an individual, nor a marriage, but the church, the community, the communion of saints itself. Freud viewed people as machines with satisfactions as its mission. We were no more than evolved primates with instincts and urges and we're most free, that is to say, we're most human when we gratify those instincts. Those instincts are the real me. But for followers of Jesus, it's not about me, it's actually about us. My development into a free and intimate human being made in God's image requires us learning to be intimate as God is intimate. So the question then becomes, if this is true, then who gets the primary voice? How do we learn what it means to be free, to be most human as God understands it? And it's quite simply, God gets the primary voice. God, through us, steers me into truth. God speaking through his community, through his scripture, through as we gather and become intimacy partners, God through us steers me into truth. And obviously when I say that, I don't mean that everyone's gonna know what's going on in your life, unless you're the pastor and then it's your job to share with everyone what's going on in your life, right? Um, there's gonna be a smaller category of three or four or five people who know everything about you and you know everything about them. And that's going to be where God is speaking and steering. But God through us 
steers me in the community. God is your primary intimacy partner, and you discern God's voice through this community. And when God speaks, he'll speak to our bodies, our minds, our spirits, all of it. And here's why this is so radical. Here's why this is radical, friends. We've been talking about the structures of Cain, and we've said that they commit violence against others, right? And Jesus is not about committing violence against others. Rather than commit violence, we absorb it ourselves. But did you notice what Jesus said in the passage? He says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. We've been talking this entire time of how Jesus does not advocate for violence against others. And yet here, he's advocating for an individual to inflict, and of course it's hyperbole, he's exaggerating, though there are some instances in church history where, where theologians took this very seriously. I'll tell you that after the fact. But Jesus is advocating for an individual to inflict extreme violence against their own self before they would commit sexual violence against another. In our society, we're told your true self is within. Don't tell yourself no. Freedom isn't telling yourself yes. Jesus is saying, well, at least, at the very least, your inner voice isn't completely trustworthy. Its instincts can lead you astray. Freedom isn't telling yourself no sometimes. To always tell yourself yes is to not have as the building block relationship, but it's to have as the building block yourself. So we commit violence against ourselves to do this. And what do I mean by violence? I don't mean self-loathing or flagellation or hating what's going on inside of you. Rather, it's an ability to know that my body's instincts, my mind's instincts aren't always leading me to freedom and to open up to others, to seek relationship so that we, by discerning the will of God together, by praying and worshiping and seeking God together, we can be led into truth. So for me, it's averting my eyes and it's internet software and it shows I won't watch, even though there are other people do and It'd probably be fine, but I don't want to give that chance in me. It's, it's friends, brothers that I have who know everything about me, who I open up to. It's Anna, who I share, who gets the reports on those internet software. So there's nothing hidden. And in that, in that prayer and discernment and that relationship, we grow up. I, I commit the violence against myself against my body so I can grow up into what it means to be a healthy and free human being. Society says if you deny the appetite, your will, that is the greatest violence and sin. Jesus would say deny the appetite or will so you can become most free. And I realize, because this is a place where people from all across the spectrum this might not be popular. <laughs> it's probably not popular with those who call themselves followers of Jesus. But I offer it because there's no other way around it. It is what he is saying. You can see how Jesus' understanding of intimacy and in the body differs so radically from our current cultures and ancient culture too. You are not a free will to be satisfied. You exist in a network of relationships as embodied relational beings, learning how to first receive love from God and love Him, and secondly, learning how to love one another. And then third, if married, learning to love your spouse. Which is why Jesus follows up this idea of our hearts lusting after another and saying that's betrayal and adul adultery with a redefinition of divorce. Because if we view our sexuality or our intimacy as individual matters, a free choice, we'll end up hurting others. And usually women and children will get hurt most of all. This is why it's also very radical in this passage because Jesus is talking to men exclusively. Men had the power in the ancient world. Women and children had no value. 
by Jesus saying you cannot divorce your spouse unless sexual immorality. By Jesus saying that, he is endowing women with tremendous agency in their marriages. He's protecting children and a network of people. And I'm not going to comment on how America decides who can uh, regulate one another's bodies. I will say, America, we don't have a shared ethic. We don't know what we, we don't all agree on what we're valuing, what's the highest good. So we need laws. That's how it regulates things. But I'm not going to comment on that. But I will say for followers of Jesus, Jesus is commenting on individualism. We're not individuals with free choice. You have a say in my sex life. You have a say. Not all of you, you know, I'm to be clear. But you get what I'm getting, my point. You have a say. I have a say in yours. I don't exist in a vacuum. We're not individuals with free choice. We exist as a community. When we dedicate children, we dedicate them to the community. They're not just the responsibility of the parents. They're your responsibility too now. They're my responsibility. And the last thing, we can't force anyone to do anything, which is the deep irony of all this. We all have to choose sexual sacrifice. We all have to choose this violence seemingly against our own bodies so as to learn how to be intimate with God and one another. Chesterton wrote that sex is an instinct that creates an institution. So what I want to do with our last bit of time, as we've been doing, is invite someone from the community who's going to uh, speak into that. So would you please welcome Tracy Sun to the front. Tracy uh, works for the DA's office uh, in human trafficking and victim services. So she provides clinical services to victims of human trafficking and domestic violence, specifically in the Mandarin-speaking community of Brooklyn, helping victims navigate the complexities of the criminal justice system through advocacy, safety planning, and service referrals. And what she's really going to help us think through, because a lot of my sermon was more of the, the personal, the first aspect, of, of, um, of what it means to pursue sexual sacrifice. What does it mean to be an intimate creature? Um, but that, that second jump of how, how we live affects and creates structures that can commit violence against the others, that's what she sees on a day-to-day -day basis. So she's really gonna help us sort of look into that quickly as we close. So the first question, Tracy, um, trafficking is clearly a structure of Cain. But the question I have is how might it be connected to you and to me. And, and also, we mentioned briefly about pornography. How might porn be connected with trafficking as well? Okay. Um, hi, everyone. So for those of you who may not know, um, the Trafficking Victims Protection Act is a federal policy that has defined human trafficking um, as the presence of force, fraud, or coercion to um, compel someone to work um, whether it's labor or sexual acts. And so um, when people hear labor trafficking or sex trafficking, it's all umbrella in the same term as human trafficking. And I was going to show you a power control wheel that gives um, different examples of the tactics that traffickers may use to enforce um, that force, fraud, or coercion, um, as well as other ways of manipulating power and control over the victims so that they don't, they like psychologically don't see themselves as people anymore, but as property to the trafficker. But we couldn't really display it so you guys could see it clearly. So I'm just gonna kind of sum up what some of those examples could look like. Um, so if you're not familiar with the power and control wheel, they're usually separated to different types of categories of abuse. And I'm just gonna like highlight some of the um, examples that I've seen um, in my work. So a lot of times when people are being trafficked, they may be providing services or work um, in ways that they are supposed to get money from. However, they may not be given that money by the trafficker because that's again a way of them to kind of control and have power over the victims. They may try to use force if they don't want to work for them. So that could look like you know hitting, strangling, sexual abuse, also they like to brand or tattoo the victim so that they 
again, feel like they're a property and owned by the trafficker. Um, other ways of intimidation by using other victims to um, hurt other victims. That way they feel like there's no sense of trust uh, among one another. Um, if they do not speak English, they won't let them learn English. So in America, that's very hard, especially if you're trying to find a way to find help. Um, they may lie to them and say that, you know, like if you try to go law enforcement, they actually work for me. So they have very um, huge distrust towards law enforcement. A lot of times they're moved around a lot, so they may not be familiar with the area or community that they're in, and if they do become familiar, they start moving them again. Um, and a lot of, like, all of this is really to just, again, make them feel like they have no sense of choice in um, what they've gotten, what they are in, in that position, whether they chose to um, work for them in the beginning or not, there's this loss of freedom um, that's being felt among them. So in pornography, like, Child pornography is illegal. Uh, and in the federal definition, actually, when we, have, when we are trying to see if there is human trafficking involved, for children who are under 18, they don't have to prove there's a presence of forced fraud or coercion. Just the fact that a child is exchanging um, sex for any type of value, like whether it's money, for food, for clothing, or a place to live, that itself is considered human trafficking, or sometimes it's coined now as commercially sexually exploited children. Um, so a lot of times, many of these children or youth I work with, they may not want to be involved in this at all, but they feel like they don't have a choice because they need a, a chance to survive. Um, and in adult pornography and where trafficking can be occurring, again, that uh, concepts of forced fraud or coercion, so um, forcing the performers to do the work even if they don't want to. Um, coercion can look like, well, I have all these contents, I'm gonna like send them to people you know or just try to blackmail them with it um, as a way to keep threatening them into doing the work. And like fraud, you can think about like deception, like someone who wanted to go into modeling and they were like, oh, the trafficker's like, I have this studio, you come work for me and I can definitely connect you with people to help start off your career, but then they find out they get into the studio and it's like actually just sex work um, in that space. So they've been deceived into um, getting involved. Awesome. And so then, where have you seen within this structure Christians, um, followers of Jesus, bring redemption into this work? Yeah, so I know some Christians who told me that once they learned about human trafficking, they decided that when in, in their purchases, they want to know where the source of their materials are coming from. For instance, like clothing, like if the brand that they are buying from is known to be working with factories that have child labor or any labor trafficking related um, types, then they refuse to buy those brands anymore. And instead, they choose to buy more ethical brands where there's more transparency and where the production is coming from. Um, otherwise, I've also known about like other Christian nonprofits that you guys may have heard of, Interjustice, International Justice Missions, who work internationally with people who have been trafficked. Um, in New York City, there's a um, faith-based organization called Restore NYC. So they work with a lot of foreign nationals who are trafficked. And then Love 146 which is like more national, I think, um, where they do a lot of education in the schools as well as providing clinical services too for survivors. So good. And so then what would you say for us? How can you encourage us to be people of Jubilee? In our own relationships, where can we improve truthfulness and sacrifice, but also in society where women seem to be most harmed? How can we be uh, people of, of the cross advocating for protection of women in relationships? Um, definitely, if you can, if you're interested, you can volunteer. Like you can look into all those nonprofits I mentioned. There's a lot of organizations who are really beginning to bring awareness to the issue, get educated more on how this affects um, the people around you and like our neighborhoods and stuff. Um, also, you know, like um, supporting the Violence Against Women Act. It's a federal policy that provided a lot of grants to organizations that provided these supportive services for survivors. So that's something that can be helpful because a lot of times it's like a lack of resources to really help and reintegrate victims back into the society. Great. And um, lastly, last question. If, you, if you've been with us, you know that we try to give three practical steps, a personal, a social, and a structural. So Tracy's going to give us our uh, social and structural step. What would that be, Tracy? Yeah, so structurally, um, the idea of getting um, 
educated and also engaging with policies. If you're interested, there are two books that um, are actually written by survivors. One is called Paid For by Rachel Moran. The other one is called Girls Like Us by Rachel Lloyd, who she's actually a founder of GEMS, which is another agency that works in New York City. Um, there's also a lot of documentaries out there. Um, a few are like called Tricked, um, Nefarious, I Am Jane Doe, Sex and Money, and The Abolitionist. Um, and then socially, you know, we as a church is partnering with Safe, um, Safe, sorry, I always forget the name, uh, Safe. Safe Families. Yeah, thank you, <laughs> Safe Families. Um, so I think that's really great because a lot of, the, a lot of times I've noticed um, the families where um, a lot of the abuse or violence is occurring or just um, lack of resources might lead to um, potential situations where people feel vulnerable and into that life of trafficking. So I think working with families who need that support is a great way to help in a way, in a, in a kind of form like a prevention. Um, also, if you yourself um, are noticing situations where there's human trafficking, I definitely encourage you not to get involved for your safety. But what you can do is you can call or um, contact the National Human Trafficking Resource Hotline. Um, it's 24 hours, and when you give a tip, it's usually anonymous, and they let law enforcement know so that law enforcement can go out and do more investigations. Awesome, thank you, Tracy. Can we give it up for Tracy? I wanna invite the band back up, and I invite you to stand to your feet. If you're serving communion, would you go ahead and come forward? And before we come to the table, I want to talk about our personal step. Because as you see the way Jesus addressed it, he started it with us and the way we view ourselves, and then it ends up connecting to societies and structures. But it starts with us. And so our step as a people is to reintegrate, to be a people who reintegrates our bodies, our minds, our spirits. And that's not an individual task. That's a communal task. That's going to require you trusting people, allowing them into your life, being allowed into their lives, but reintegrating the fullness of who you are into the full intimacy of community that will seek God's voice above everything else. As we discuss, as we, as we learn what it means to be a full and free human being, would we be those who worship first, who pray first, who seek God first, and then out of that, with open hands, allow God to speak. Would you close your eyes and pray with me? Lord, you have never desired us to be compartmentalized creatures. You've never desired us to be split apart. You want us to be whole. So Lord, my prayer first is for anyone in this room who feels like they're hiding, who feels shame. Lord, my deepest prayer is that they would know that there is no shame in your eyes. You're not a God who shames them. You adore them. You adore them. The lies of the enemy and the lies of this world have said that their shame is too much, but it's not true. My prayer is that before anything else, that they would make themselves available to that stuff that's just been pushed so down, so far down deep, that they've almost convinced themselves it's not there. Would you speak to them in that place? Would they allow you to speak to them and to love them there? Would we be a people who are not afraid 
but also, Lord, would we be a people who bring the fullness of ourselves, minds, bodies, spirits, and lay it before you. Seek your face, your truth, and seek it together as a community. For each person in this room, would they trust others with the fullness of their hearts? Would you show them who they can trust or who you want them to build trust with? It was noted by ancient Christian uh, uh, scholars, historians of the first church, that the Roman society was loose with their body and stingy with their money. But what was so fascinating about the first Christians is that they were very stingy with their body and loose with their money. Would we be known by that? Would we be known, we're not prudes, we're actually more sexual than the rest of society, but in a very different way. We're more intimate than anyone else, but in a very different way. Would we value these vessels you've given us? Would we value one another? Jesus, do this work. Do this work. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.